Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello! I'm incredibly excited to introduce, right now, the very first episode of Slate Money, the best podcast in the world, at least the most recent. It's going to cover business and finance and all things like that. I'm Felix Salmon. I'm the senior editor at Fusion, and today we're going to be discussing Alibaba, which is this Chinese internet giant company that is soon also going to be a Cayman Islands special purpose vehicle selling shares on an American stock exchange. We're also going to be talking about Sotheby's, the auction house, which lost its battle this week with a hedge fund billionaire. And we'll debate the minimum wage. Is $15 an hour a brilliant policy, a disaster in the making, or is it not going far enough? And finally, every week we're going to go around the table for a lightning round of interesting numbers, one number each from this past week. There are three of us here in New York. I'm joined by the other two members of the core Slate Money team. Kathy O'Neill is a former hedge fund quant who then became a central player in Occupy. Kathy, what, what are you doing these days? Oh, hi, Felix. Um, thanks for having me. I'm working at the Journalism School of Columbia, starting a new data journalism program. Sounds very exciting. And, of course, this being Slate, we're joined by Slate's very own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. How did you wind up here, Jordan? Well, you very kindly asked me, Felix. (laughs) How could I say no? (laughs) And Jordan came from The Atlantic. I did. I was a writer and editor at The Atlantic, uh, covering various and sundry business-related topics uh, before I came to Slate. And we also have the amazing producer sitting opposite us, Stan, who is currently on his laptop trying to work out whether it is possible to buy something on Alibaba if you're here in New York. This is going to be a real-time test. So as he starts tapping away on his laptop, Jordan is going to explain why are we talking about Alibaba? What is it? 
Alibaba, it is the, it's the hot IPO of the moment. On Tuesday, uh, China's biggest e-commerce company uh, filed its prospectus. It's going to start offering its stock in the United States. Um, and it, it's, I mean, it's hard to convey the scale of this company. Uh, it sells more goods than Amazon and eBay combined. And, you know, what makes that so, so uh, titillating to investors is that China has really just barely even begun to shop. It's not even really a consumer economy yet. And already it's doing this much business. Um, and it's just, you know, for people who've been starting to pay attention, it's just kind of amusing. You can, you know, it's whereas Amazon, uh, you know, buys and ships goods itself. Alibaba is more like just a marketplace. You know, it's a bazaar. So you can get practically anything on there. You can get steel in bulk. You can get a used jetliner. Um, there are people who are turning up a massive uh, kind of my-sized Arnold Schwarzenegger statue, except he had a shotgun like he was in Terminator. He was naked and obese. Um, <laughs> the whole is a wonderful and weird sight, and uh, people can't wait to put their money into it, it looks like. So how much is it worth? Uh, the whole company, you know, people have been valuing it somewhere around $200 billion, but that's early at this point. I'm sure that money, that number is going to fluctuate a bit as we get closer to the actual IPO. Now, so here's the question. Yeah. Is it Alibaba, the Chinese company, which is worth $200 billion? Or is it this weird Cayman Island special purpose vehicle, which technically we're going to be buying shares in? Kathy, what, what is going on here? It makes no sense to me. Yeah. And first of all, why is it in the United States that it's IPOing? Well, the reason it's in the United States is because the Hong Kong authorities wouldn't let it list in Hong Kong because it, like many other internet companies like Facebook and Google, has a dual class share structure so that its founders control the company even if they don't own a majority of the stock. And the Hong Kong Stock Exchange believes in true shareholder democracy and it believes that one share should have one vote and it doesn't believe in, in dual class shares. So it's not allowed to, le- to list in Hong Kong. And so it came to New York, which has much looser listing requirements. I see. And said, we're going to list here instead. The problem, of course, is that it's very hard to list a Chinese company in New York. So what they've done is they've gone via the Cayman Islands? Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a whole slew of different issues. What it reminds me of is the the missing, misunderstood and secret and invisible forms of risk that we see. And I worked in, in the field of risk, um, usually financial risk, but it was after the credit crisis and we had seen that the counterparty risk was the risk that everybody was invisible to at that point. This is the risk that the person you're doing a deal with suddenly goes bust and you don't get paid out on the contract which you thought was an ironclad contract. Exactly. And then when Lehman fell in the credit crisis, everybody had contracts with Lehman and so everybody was like screwed because what happened to the the counterparty there. But anyway, the point is that there's all sorts of hidden risks and our system as a whole um, loves ignoring them. And I feel like this Cayman Islands, which is, this is not the only thing happening with the Cayman Islands. Obviously, there's lots of lots of legal contracts going through the Cayman Islands for tax purposes and, and hiding purposes. But I feel like that is the risk that we are now ignoring. I feel like that's going to blow up at some point. Well, it gets even more complicated than that. I mean, so you have a company that operates in China. It's basically incorporated in the Cayman Islands. It's going to be uh, its stock is going to be listed in New York somewhere, really New Jersey, but New York. Um, and at the same time, the company itself, Alibaba, doesn't even really own its contracts to run its own websites. Those are owned by these kind of 
entities in China that are really controlled by Jack Ma, who is both the chairman of Alibaba and exercises control over it, but also has all these independent business interests aside from that, that in the prospectus, it says outright, might sometimes conflict with Alibaba's. It's, so the, the it's, pres- prospectus, I have to note, has 27,000 words of risk factors, <laughs> which if you took them all seriously, you would just run screaming from this thing. So the question is, what, well, what, number one, does Alibaba in China get all of the money that it's due or does it get siphoned off by Jack Ma before that? And number two, does the special purpose vehicle, this thing called a variable interest entity in the Cayman Islands, it has a contract with Alibaba that Alibaba is going to basically dividend up to the Cayman Islands all of the money that it makes. But if Alibaba doesn't, if it breaks that contract, what happens? What recourse do the shareholders have? I think what we're saying is that if you're a mom and pop investor, you should definitely be putting your money in Alibaba. No, no, the, the big question which yeah, I no. have yeah. is that if you have such a crazy setup and you have 27,000 words of risk factors and you have 8 million different things which can go wrong and ways in which this, even if Alibaba turns into an incredibly successful global company, you still wind up with a worthless piece of paper. Given all of those risks, how much of a discount is Alibaba going to trade at? Do investors actually price in those risks or not, Kathy? My my feeling is that um, people buying it at the IPO are not factoring in those risks. They're just saying, oh, my God, the Chinese people really want to buy stuff from Alibaba, and there's lots of Chinese people. And what another thing they're ignoring that we haven't mentioned is in spite of the fact that there's lots of Chinese people who probably do want to buy things on the Chinese Amazon there's also, and I know this has been been said for almost a decade at this point, a, an impending credit crisis going on in China. So if we also, I'd like to think about that risk factor, which is a big one. I mean, basically, this share structure, it's sort of like the European Union, you know? <laughs> like, let's, let's ignore the possibility of bad things happening and just hope that everything is always good. And in that situation, it's maybe a good thing to buy. Get on this ride, which is Alibaba shares. Just so long as you get off in time. Exactly. So it's almost like a bubble by, it's, by it's creation. The, it's the greater fool theory. That it, it, the, there will, as long as there's going to be someone in the future who's willing to pay more for the stock. It doesn't matter if it all is going to end in tears. But that's all the time we have for with respect to Alibaba. We're moving on though. Wait, wait, wait. Before we go. Before we go. Can Americans buy stuff on Alibaba? So Stan, the producer is going to come in here and tell us whether he's been able to buy something on Alibaba. The answer is... It looks like you can buy in massive bulk, but it involves figuring out which port you're going to get things shipped to. I I couldn't just buy myself like a a hooded sweatshirt. Okay, so next week we are going to attempt to buy a shipment of 80,000 hooded sweatshirts, and we're going to give them out to all of our listeners, and it's going to be amazing. But that's for the future, and you can take that to the bank, by the way, just as you can all of the promises in the variable interest entity, which is known as (laughs) Alibaba. Um, But we're going to stay on this whole topic of corporate governance because we're moving on to topic number two, which is one of my favorite subjects, the art world, dominated by two big auction houses. One of them is privately owned. It's called Christie's. It's owned by a French billionaire called Francois Pinault. The other one, more interestingly, is a public listed company. You can buy shares in Sotheby's on the New York Stock Exchange. It trades under the ticker symbol bid. You know, isn't that funny? And what that means is that in this famously opaque industry of art, 
we have a tiny little window into what's actually going on and how much money people are making. And the big news in Sotheby's over the past few months is that this activist billionaire hedge fund manager, Dan Loeb, has been attacking them. And has, he's also an art collector. And so he's had a lot of dealings with Sotheby's in the past. And he likes contemporary art like most nouveau hedge fund types do. <laughs> and he said that he wanted to get board seats. He wanted Sotheby's to give money back to shareholders. He wanted to shake up the management of the company. And he's basically wound up getting pretty much everything he wanted. Uh, now, I don't think this is a good thing, and I might explain why in a minute. But Jordan, what's your take on all this? Well, you know, it's interesting to me. Um, I spent a lot of time covering higher education, and I'm going to explain how this relates. And um, almost everybody has an opinion about higher education because they went to college. And so they assume they know how it, you know colleges should be run, work and whatnot. And now, a lot of billionaires, a lot every billion, not every billion, most billionaires, whatever, trade in art, buy art. That is an asset they love. It's a way to give themselves a little burnish their, you know, their reputation as you know someone who's cultured. So of course, you are eventually going to find some billionaire who, because he trades a lot of art, knows exactly how an auction house should be run and is going to invest his money and start using his clout as a hedge fund manager to try and redirect it in a way that's going to be advantageous. Now, in the case of Loeb, you know, he is clearly trying to push for the here and now. He's trying to get them more, you know, to try to compete with Christie's on the uh, kind of modern art market, on the Chinese art market, which is, you know, red hot, um, to try and get those profits while they're there. What's kind of interesting to me is nobody really knows what Christie's makes because it's privately owned. It's a, it's a plaything of, a, you know, a French billionaire. Whereas, I have it on relatively good authority that Christie's is not profitable. That, that's what I've read. Uh, yeah. And so he's basically saying, I want you to compete with this auction house, dear public company, that is not profitable so that you can be more profitable. And so it's a little bit, and this is why I think it's, you get a hobbyist coming in and trying to run one of these auction houses, essentially. It's a little bit frightening. It, it, and the weird thing is, Kathy, surely, you know, Dan Loeb is not completely stupid. Surely he knows that Christie's doesn't make money. How, how does he plan to make money by giving away. So Sotheby's, in response to Dan Loeb, just to give a bit of background here, one of the first things it did is it declared a special dividend. It gave $300 million away to its shareholders. This was most of its balance sheet. This is the money that it needs to be able to buy and sell art. Art is a bit like property. Unless you have very deep pockets, you can't play. And Sotheby's basically emptied out its pockets in an attempt to placate Dan Loeb, what is going on here? How can it possibly work? What can you explain? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I'm not an expert on art, but I, I did, you know, I read Le- Matt Levine's Bloomberg View on this, and he actually did the research to see what what Dan Loeb was actually asking them to do, and. Contrary to what we think of as shareholders and shareholder rights and the shareholder movement, which we might talk about a little bit, he wasn't asking for the dividend. He was actually asking them to invest in essentially online technological tools. He was kind of asking, wait, don't waste your money on dividends. I mean, I didn't, I don't think he said that exactly. Yeah, but I, he I've said been invest. looking, I've been looking to see what he said about the special dividend and he's been very quiet about it. He did say that he wanted Sotheby's to return more to shareholders, but he never actually came out and said that the special dividend was a good idea. Right. Well, that's what, if we might just elevate the conversation a little bit to this concept of what what it means to have share, to think about the shareholders, it seems like Sotheby's was assuming that this guy, since he was like, in a pushy shareholder, would want the standard, very short-term thinking 
of dividends, but um, instead of long-term value, which, you know, and, you know. And whereas the, the reality, I think, with Dan Loeb is that he's a real genius and specialist at playing the medium term. So if you look at what he did at Yahoo, he bought it cheap, shook it up, got people excited about it, and then exited after a couple of years. And I think that's his plan, frankly, at Sotheby's, is that he's going to get people excited about it by getting it into China and getting it into online and all of these buzzy things and try and get it bigger in contemporary art in the hope that other shareholders, the greater fools that we were talking about earlier, will then get excited about it and bid up the shares, at which point he can then exit, even though it has never actually made any money doing what he said it should do. And I just like to, you know, argue that medium term is better than short term. Um, you know, <laughs> like we, I'd rather have a company that looks good in five years than one that's dead in five years. Well, this brings up the the bigger question, though. I think a lot uh, about the shareholder value movement, which is, you know, we saw this with Carl Icahn and, and Apple, for instance. That was another high profile, fairly recent example. And, and just this idea that, you know, the shareholder is always right. And it seems like, like maybe there's beginning to be a little bit of intellectual pushback on that, finally. And I feel like, Kathy, you know, since you guys are both a little bit more engaged in the markets than I am, I'm, I'm curious to get your senses of whether or not you're starting to begin to see a turning point. Well, Justin Fox has written a couple of pieces about this for the Harvard Business Review and for The Atlantic, where he explains that this myth that companies have some kind of fiduciary duty to maximize return to shareholders is just not true. It's not in any law. It doesn't exist. And I do think that one of the companies I've been looking at recently is Twitter, which its share, share price recently went down quite substantially. And people got very afraid about this. And it's like, is this the end of Twitter? Because the minute that a company goes public, especially in the US, people don't judge the company by what it does, or even by how much money it makes, but they judge it by its share price. And so even though Twitter is a great service, and I love it, people are going to start thinking that it's doomed if the share price is going down and to the right instead of up and to the right. And that worries me. Well, I mean, I mean, I would say that sometimes the share price is going down for a good reason. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love Twitter, too. And I, that's how I met you, Felix. But, um, but you know, you do need a business model at some point. And not, not many of these new media companies. But, but Twitter's profits are going up quite spectacularly. The, you know, it's not the business model. It's something a little bit, bit vaguer than that. But we will talk about Twitter in the future, I'm sure. We have to move on to the third big topic that we're covering today, which is the minimum wage in Seattle. I think I'm going to give this one to Kathy to tell me what's going on here. Right. Well, we're going to talk about the minimum wage in Seattle. and um, But I just wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly and just to give a tiny bit of history here, which is that, you know, in Europe now, they're talking about the basic income guarantee, which is the idea of having everyone have at least a certain amount of money. And sometimes it means to absolutely everyone. And sometimes it means if you have a, you know, below a certain... Um, and this is... Two or three thousand dollars a year a month. Um, it can be up to eleven thousand. It depends on which country you're talking about. Switzerland is taking it pretty seriously. It's a conversation. Nobody's actually passed that, and that sounds like pretty extreme. But the weird thing is that you know while we're all chattering about the minimum wage, especially in Seattle, um, there's actually a kind of a libertarian movement in this country to to bring that back and to get rid of other things like food stamps and replace it with just something like a basic income guarantee. And So if we had a universal basic income, which you received, regardless of whether or not you're working, that would replace the minimum wage? Well, it it depends on how it works. And that's what I wanted to bring up, which is that 
for absolutely everyone, the basic income guarantee for absolutely everyone is really expensive. So when it was first brought up, it actually in the mid-60s, right after the war on poverty, it was basically th- thrown aside because it was too expensive. So then Nixon came up with this idea of having what's called a negative income tax, um, where if you were poor enough, you got that money. That actually kind of pairs well with minimum wage, if you think about it. Because if you have a good job with $15 an hour or whatever, you'll be making too much money for the negative income tax. So it, it kind of of, and certainly, a, I don't. I don't really want my taxpayer dollars go to paying Dan Loeb a basic income. He really doesn't need the money or want it. And you also probably don't want Walmart to underpay their workers so that they have to be on food stamps. It addresses that issue as well. What happened was, believe it or not, the left decided that it it was too paternalistic, and they they decided not to do that. That was in the early 70s. So the, at this point, the Nixonian right was being more generous to the poor than yes. the left. It's weird. It's weird. It was, it, you know, it was a different time back when government was expected to actually do something and in particular be effective. There was also some question when the Nixonian right was offering it. There, there were some questions about whether or not whether or not Nixon was saying, okay, we'll give you this, but then we're going to gut other programs. And another thing that's really interesting and that corresponds to what we should be doing right now, in my opinion, and then we'll talk more about minimum wage, is that they did a study back then. They were going to do the negative income tax where you get money if you have a blow a certain salary, but they did a study and realized that a lot of people would stop working if that happened. So is that is that is that going to happen in well in Seattle, Jordan? When if they introduce their fifteen dollar minimum wage? Yeah, so it, it's Seattle's an interesting case. What's uh, going on in Seattle? Yeah, Tell so us. Seattle um, had a, a highly competitive. So Seattle is like as far to the left now as, as you get in an American city. I think they're the new standard bearer essentially for the American left. And there was a mayor's race where, and, well, and a city council's race where there was a socialist city council member uh, or city council candidate who started campaigning uh, on the idea of you know giving every fa- striking fast food worker their great desire and making the city's minimum wage fifteen dollars. And pretty soon you had a mayoral candidate who was actually supposed to be the guy who was farther to the right pick it up to prove his it seemed like to prove his liberal bona fides and then the his competitor picked it up eventually this just became kind of the consensus okay seattle's going to do a 15 dollars minimum wage they had this big committee with business leaders and everyone yada 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 and they hashed out a plan to introduce it over about three to seven years and frankly i'm kind of worried about this and it's not because i don't support a higher minimum wage i actually think a ten dollar minimum wage which is a little higher than the state level in seattle uh, or in, in Washington State, is a very good idea. And the reason why I'm not worried about $10 one is because it's within America's kind of historical experience. Uh, the value of the minimum wage adjusted for inflation maxed out at around 1066 in 1968. And we've had adjustments around, you know, the 4 to $10 range um, ever since. We have lots of studies, evidence that suggests, you know, you can hike it up to around there and probably not do too much damage to uh, job creation. Um, once you go outside of that, range, uh, out of that $10 range, we don't really know what happens. And even if you talk to some of the economists who the left usually cite in terms of saying the minimum wage doesn't harm uh, job creation, they'll even say, we don't really know. It might work out. It might not. So isn't, that, isn't that an argument to do it so that we can find out? Well, so I, I, I'm conflicted because I kind of want one city to do it. But I wouldn't want it to be my city. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, you know, well, it's I've, not. It's Seattle. You live well, in New York now. Yeah, but you know, do I feel okay saying, yeah, Seattle, go ahead, and maybe it's going to end up... But, you know. but this is what Seattle has voted for, right? This, Seattle actually wants it. We want... We, the society, want a city to do it because it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah. They want to do it. We want, them, we want someone to do it. Isn't Seattle the obvious place to do it? I, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the econ geek in me is... is 
says yes. The person who says, you know, what about that black or Hispanic teenager who might not get a job now because, you know, their employer thinks that $15 they should be hiring maybe a someone with an associate's degree or even a college degree. Uh, it, it's a little bit. It, it's a little bit worse. You see, I, I'm optimistic about the $15 minimum wage. I think it's going to work out quite well because I think that so many low wage jobs have been outsourced or automated already. That the jobs which you need a human being to do are just going to be done by human beings. And if you need to pay them $15, maybe you're going to get less turnover, a happier workforce, a healthier workforce, less ill people, sick people. It's I, I, be and if you don't mind me jumping in here, I, my problem with the minimum wage is that it doesn't go far enough in the sense that the people who don't have jobs, um, they don't get addressed whatsoever. And that's bringing it back to what you just said, the experiment in Seattle. Great idea, I think. I think we should also do this in another experiment on the negative income tax again right now, because the truth is it might have made people stop working in the 1970s. But we have a totally different society now. We, as you said, and we, we have we have a rapidly falling employment to population ratio. So mm-hmm. we have many, many pe- more people without jobs. That tax would actually be much more expensive. One of the reasons why a higher minimum wage on a national level is a good idea is because it's a great way of providing a fiscal stimulus without the government having to pay for it because you wind up having employers paying more to the poor and those poor people who earn more are then going to spend more. Poor poor people spend nearly everything they earn and so that goes back into the country and you get faster growth. And if you think about all the, the record profits of private companies, then it's the right time to do it. I, I think I think there's some truth to that. Um, but coming back to what Kathy said, I, I think this is something liberals tend to miss about the minimum wage is that, yeah, it really... I think it's a great tool for helping working class families and some middle class families even. But if you actually look at who who holds minimum wage jobs, it's not the poor per se because the poor largely don't work. They, they're out of a job for one reason or another. And, and that, that sounds like I'm making kind of a value judgment, but I'm not. A lot of the times it's because they're sick. They're taking care of family. They, there's a good reason why they're not working. And they're, you know, they've, they've fallen below the poverty line, usually not for years and years at a time. It's usually a temporary thing. Um, but that's why I think the focus on, on getting a higher and higher minimum wage is a little bit problematic for liberal discourse because it blinkers us a little bit to these other issues and these ideas like a negative income tax or just, you know, figuring out other ways to fix the welfare state to make it uh, a little bit more humane. Well, so now that we've fixed the welfare state in <laughs> in 8.3 minutes, thankfully, we could, we're going to move on to the lightning round at the end of the Slate Money podcast. Each of us has brought a number to the table. Jordan, what's your number? $3.2 billion which is the reported purchase price that Apple is paying for Beats Electronics, the headphone maker, the Beats by Dre brand, founded by uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Ovine. Also, uh, they have a new music streaming service, which I actually think is what Apple's more interested in. If you look at Apple's kind of control over the music industry, it's been declining rapidly because people are no longer buying downloads anymore. They're streaming their music. If you ask me the, the reason why... Apple is interested in Beats is because Beats has an absolutely mind-blowing market share of the of the headphone market right now. It's about 70%. Mm-hmm. And these are the wearables that people are actually wearing. These are the pieces of technology which people are happy to walk around with on their body more than any other piece of technology. And if you want to start integrating technology into what you wear, this is the obvious place to do it. 
Kathy, what's what's your number? My number is one. Uh, that's a good number. It's my favorite number. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> Easy number to track. Um, we didn't have time to discuss it at length, but Jesse Eisinger's piece um, in New York Times ProPublica about there there being only one top banker that went to jail um, out of the financial crisis was an interesting, and I think it's you know a timely piece. I think. We as infuriating as it makes me as a, as an occupier, we have to acknowledge that the bankers do what they do, and if the regulators don't catch them and punish them, and if the Justice Department doesn't catch them and punish them, then it's actually on the Justice Department to fix their mistakes. And that, his piece examined exactly what has gone wrong, um, what has been exposed by the financial crisis there. And I'm going to stick with banking for my number. My number is nineteen thousand which is the number of jobs that Barclays is going to cut. And and when I say Barclays, of course, what I really mean is Lehman Brothers, because Barclays bought Lehman Brothers, discovered amazingly to everybody's shock that it was quite a rotten bad bank. <laughs> and now they're, now they're setting up into, into a separate bad bank. They're cutting 19,000 jobs, most of them in investment banking. And they're going back to their core business of retail banking, especially in Africa, which is growing quite fast. And I think this says a lot about the future of banking, that investment banks in general, if you look at the multiples they're trading on in the stock market, no one thinks that they have much of a future compared to good old-fashioned retail banks. And I'm, I'm quite heartened that by banking's going to get boring and safe again? Is that what you're telling us? I hope so. I mean, at least, at least you know, we'll have old-fashioned banking blow-ups where banks <laughs> lend too much money into real estate rather than having new-fashioned banking blow-ups where it's all to do with synthetic collateralized debt obligations. Everything's I'm not right holding now. my breath. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in any case, that's all we have time for in this inaugural edition of Slate Money. I hope you enjoyed it. You can write to us with your comments and complaints and requests for things to cover in the future. SlateMoney at Slate.com. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn, who is currently ordering a crate full of material to Port Elizabeth, New Jersey, I believe, on Alibaba, and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. And for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.